You know, in all of human history, one of the greatest challenges has been to understand the mysteries of the universe in which we live. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And on today's program, we're going to visit with one of the brightest minds alive today and examine his latest theory that takes a big step towards explaining it all. The eminent physicist, Dr. Michio Kaku, will join us right here in just a moment to bring us up to date on his theory of everything. Yeah, and don't get worried, folks. You know, Bill, what I love the most about this guy is is he has a passion for translating these convoluted, very difficult theories to the rest of us. He's going to do that. Uh, you know, and, and his theory goes back to try to unravel what it was that happened 13.8 billion years ago with the very creation of the universe itself, the, the thing we all know is the Big Bang. We're going to ask Kaku why he takes issue with some of Albert Einstein's findings and why he believes his theory brings us one step closer to understanding reality itself and what it tells us about understanding the very forces of nature. Ordinary people, extraordinary conversations. This is Growing Bolder. Well, we all know there is one thing we've all been fascinated by since we were very young and looked up to the sky, the mysteries of the expanding universe. How can something be infinite? The Big Bang, 13 billion years ago, wormholes, black holes, time travel, a multiverse, alien civilizations, dark matter, and more. And of course, these are also the questions that have consumed many of the greatest minds in history, which is why I'm extremely excited to talk to one of those great minds right now. And what makes this guy unique is that he's able to talk to us in a way that's both captivating and understandable. He's a renowned theoretical physicist. He's a futurist. He's one of the world's greatest scientific communicators. Uh, You've seen this guy all over network television, and you have certainly heard about, if not read, uh, many of his New York Times bestsellers. His latest may, in fact, be his greatest. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So let's welcome Dr. Michio Kaku. Dr. Kaku, how are you doing today? Very good. Well, after such a great introduction, I can't wait to hear the speaker myself. Uh, You know what? Uh, We really appreciate your time. This is quite an honor for us. So if you will, take us back to the beginning and and not the beginning of the universe. We're going to get there in a minute. But the beginning of your fascination with what really are life's biggest mysteries. Well, it all started when I was eight years old. Something happened which completely changed my life. The newspaper said that a great scientist had just died, and they put a picture of his desk on the evening news. On that picture was a book, an open book, and the caption said, the greatest mind of our time could not finish this book. Well, I was fascinated. I had to know what was in that book. What could be so hard that the great scientist could not finish it? So I went to the library. And I found out this man's name was Albert Einstein. And that book was to be the theory of everything. An equation perhaps no more than one inch long. The God equation. An equation that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. 
Well, I was hooked. I wanted to become a physicist to try to finish that book. And when I was in high school, by the way, I even built a particle accelerator. I assembled 400 pounds of transformer steel, and I built a 2.3 million electron volt Betatron particle accelerator in my mom's garage. Every time I plugged it in, I would blow out every single circuit breaker in the house. <laughs> and my poor mom would say, why couldn't I have a son who plays basketball? Maybe if I buy him a baseball. And for God's sake, why can't you find a nice Japanese girlfriend? Well, <laughs> because I built these things, I went to the National Science Fair in Albuquerque, and I met one of the creators of the atomic bomb, Edward Teller. And he graciously offered me a scholarship to Harvard. And that began my career as a physicist. After graduating from Harvard, he offered me a job. Edward Teller, father of the hydrogen bomb, offered me a job to go to Los Alamos, Livermore, or MIT to design hydrogen warheads. Well, I very respectfully declined that very generous offer because I wanted to work on something even bigger, an even bigger explosion, and that is the creation of the universe itself. Genesis, because that's what the God equation is all about. The God equation triggered the Big Bang and has been uh, elucidating the evolution of the universe ever since. That's what I do for a living. Wow. And, and you discovered it at eight years old, at least the passion. So let's do go back to the Big Bang, because I've read many different things. Uh, is it a consensus now among physicists like yourself that the Big Bang occurred about 13.8 billion years ago? Do I have that right? Well, the consensus is that 13.8 billion years ago, there was a cosmic explosion out of which the galaxies, the stars, planets, you and me came out of. Where we disagree is the fact that Einstein says the universe is a bubble of some sort. The bubble is expanding. That's the Big Bang Theory. But where we physicists disagree is whether or not there are other bubbles out there. And when these bubbles collide, that's the Big Bang. In other words, we have a theory of the Big Bang itself, that perhaps the Big Bang was created by a bubble bath of universes bumping into each other or splitting apart, creating a theory called the multiverse, that our universe may not be the only one. There could be other universes out there. And of course, at this point, many people email me and say, Professor, if there are other universes out there, is Elvis Presley still alive in another parallel universe? Well, believe it or not, you can't rule it out. The king could still be belting out hits, perhaps, in a parallel universe. Not our universe, however. Sorry about that. So do you really think, uh, Dr. Kaku, that th there could be such a thing as a God equation, a simple equation that, that answers everything. And, and you just said that it, it could be this short. When, when I think of a God equation, I have a vision of the whiteboard in goodwill hunting where, you know, it's one line after another. Could it really be reduced to something that short and that profound? Well, we think so. Today we have something called the uh, theory of almost everything. It's called the standard model. One line is Einstein's equation, which, by the way, is one inch long. All of Einstein's theory can be summarized in an equation one inch long. Now, the quantum theory, however, is messy. 
Our present understanding is incomplete. It's a horrible equation. It's about a foot long, and it has 21 free parameters, uh, three generations of particles, um, 36 quarks and antiquarks. It's a mess. However, it does fit on one sheet of paper, and we want to get it down to one inch. You know the equation E equals mc squared? Even school children know that equation. That equation unlocked the secret of the stars. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that the secret of the stars could be summarized in an equation one inch long? Well, Einstein wanted to do even better than that. He wanted to summarize the universe in an equation just one inch long. And today we have such a theory. The theory is called string theory, and I'm one of the pioneers in this subject. And the string theory says that basically music, the music of subatomic particles is the missing paradigm, the paradigm that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life. I have so many questions. Uh, are there rules in the universe that would limit the size of living beings? Uh, I know to some extent gravity determines the size of living beings on any planet. Uh, so is it inconceivable to think that there are huge giant beings somewhere, or, or are we limited in size? Well, there's something called exobiology, and believe it or not, uh, we scientists, physicists, biologists, talk about planets out there that have a stronger gravity, less gravitational field, have a day that is much shorter, a day that is much longer. You realize that we have discovered 4,000 planets orbiting other stars in the galaxy in our own backyard. And we can even do a census of the Milky Way galaxy. On average, out of 100 billion stars, out of 100 billion stars, every single one has a planet going around it. And about 20% of them have Earth-like planets. So your question about biology and gravity on another planet is definitely a possibility. We find planets called super-Earths that are bigger than the Earth, but they're rocky. They are rocky planets. They have a solid surface, not gaseous. And yes, we think that life could exist on a planet with stronger gravity or even less gravity. And remember, there could be billions, billions of Earth-like planets in our own backyard. That is absolutely staggering to think about that. It is mind-blowing. And folks, we are speaking with renowned uh, theoretical physicist, uh, Dr. Michio Kaku. And uh, doctor, if you can stick around for a few more minutes, I've got a bunch of other questions. But uh, I don't know if people need me to tell them this. They, they can ascertain this by listening to you. Uh, you graduated summa cum laude, number one in your physics class at Harvard. You've got a PhD from Cal Berkeley. Uh, you've lectured at Princeton. You're a professor in New York City. You've written textbooks on everything from string theory to quantum field mechanics, things that are well beyond the understanding of most of us, myself included, but yet you seem to take your greatest pleasure uh, in spending time coming back for the rest of us, trying to make it understandable to all of us. What compels you to try to translate these big ideas for the rest of us? Why is that important? Well, I write two kinds of books. Uh, one set of books that I write is PhD textbooks 
that are used around the world for graduate students, for PhD student, PhD students getting their doctorate in theoretical physics. But you know, I still remember the frustration I felt as a child going to the library, looking up things like the fourth dimension, antimatter, parallel universes, wormholes, and finding nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just science fiction novels with buzzwords like antimatter and warp drive. I wanted to know the real thing. And so I said to myself, when I grow up and I become a theoretical physicist, I want to at least write books for myself as a child, being so frustrated, realizing that in the library there was nothing, nothing that could explain these fantastic concepts. You see, when I was eight years old, not only was Einstein one of my role models, but on Saturday mornings, I used to watch Flash Gordon on TV, and I was also hooked. Spaceships, invisibility shields, cities in the sky. These are all the things that George Lucas stole into what is called the Star Wars saga. Flash Gordon has basically been reincarnated as Luke Skywalker. And so I wanted to address those kids that are so frustrated. They hear these buzzwords, but nobody is there to explain these buzzwords to them. Is it all fiction or is there some fact behind the fourth dimension, wormholes, warp drive? And that's one reason why I write my books. You've been compared to uh, Carl Sagan in, in your ability to, to, to share with the rest of us and teach all of us about some complex things. Uh, let me ask you about the the Webb Space Telescope because this thing has been the the launch has been delayed for many many years now scheduled for later this year. Will they launch it? And how significant is that? Uh, how far might we see? And what could we see? Well, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope has been the workhorse. It really opened up a whole new dimension for physicists, instead of speculating about neutron stars and pulsars, instead of speculating about these things, we can actually analyze them with data. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope is getting old. We need a replacement for it called the Webb. The Webb telescope is so accurate that it can actually photograph other planets going around other stars. This is amazing. Who would have thought? (laughs) <laughs> Who would have thought that we would have a space telescope so powerful that it could actually take a snapshot of a planet circulating around another star in another solar system? And so we think that the Webb Space Telescope, just like the Hubble Space Telescope, will open up a whole new dimension for astronomy. For example, right now we're at just at the beginning of being able to photograph a black hole. Think about that. This was considered science fiction when I was a grad student. But now we can actually photograph in the radio range a black hole in the galaxy M87. And so whole new worlds are opening up. And with that, new physics will also open up. Physics that we think will be explained by string theory, which is what I do for a living. That's my day job. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned black holes. You mentioned wormholes. Uh, do wormholes exist? And if so, are, are they like what has been presented in science fiction uh, movies? I, is it an opportunity for alien beings perhaps now and maybe humans in the future to, to actually move from one part of the universe to another faster even than the speed of light? 
Well, a lot of physicists, friends of mine, who, when you talk to them about flying saucers and UFOs, you hear the giggle factor. They start to giggle, their eyes roll up in the heavens, and they say that the stars are so far away that aliens cannot reach us. But you see, that's, they're making a fatal mistake. That assumes that the aliens are only maybe 100 years more advanced than us, in which case, yeah, they can't reach us. But let's say they are a thousand years, a million years more advanced. Then there's possibilities that they could use something called wormholes in order to go across thousands of light years in the galaxy. Now, you've seen a wormhole ever since you were a child. Think of Alice's looking glass. The looking glass of Alice is a wormhole, Hmm. a gateway between two universes, Oxford on one hand and Wonderland on the other. Not surprisingly, Alice in Wonderland was written by a mathematician, Oxford mathematician um, that went by the pseudonym Lewis Carroll. His real name was Charles Dodson, by the way. He couldn't write a children's book as a professor of mathematics, so he wrote it as a children's book. But the, the looking glass is the wormhole, a gateway, a tunnel, a subway system that allows you to go faster than the speed of light, consistent with Einstein's theory. You know, the great cosmologist Stephen Hawking looked into it and said, well, yeah, it looks as if if you have enough energy, a wormhole might be possible. Now, a time machine, he had some doubts about, but he thought a wormhole machine through space was possibly within the realm of physics. Up next, we continue the conversation. More from Mark Middleton, more from Michio Kaku on the theory of everything. That's what we call Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Florida Blue Medicare. Turning 64 is a time to celebrate as new adventures and opportunities await. And 64 is also a time to think about Medicare. Growing Boulder created a guide that helps explain it all. Available for free at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. Folks, you are here at a great time. We are right in the middle of a fascinating conversation between Growing Boulder founder Mark Middleton and the eminent physicist Michio Kaku about some of the deepest unsolved questions about the universe itself and the origins of life. So let's rejoin Michio and Mark. We are talking with Dr. Michio Kaku about the things we all wake up in the middle of the night contemplating throughout our lives. And a couple of questions that don't really have anything to do with physics, but but since I've got you here and you're a big thinker, uh, MLK said that the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends toward justice. Uh, What about the arc of science? Is is science neutral uh, or will it ultimately destroy the planet or perhaps save the planet? Because I know you noted earlier in this conversation that you walked away from an offer uh, to actually get involved in the development of nuclear weapons. Uh, It certainly has the potential to do either. What do you think it's going to do? 
Well, I tend to disagree with most other physicists on this question. Most physicists would say that science is neutral, like a double-edged sword. One side can cut against ignorance, poverty, disease. The other side can cut against you and me and innocent people. But I tend to disagree because, you see, the Internet spreads information. With information comes empowerment. People act on this information. And with this more empowerment, communication lines are set up and democracy is propelled. So I think that democracy is one of the outcomes of the Internet. And I think, therefore, there is a moral direction that empowerment, because information becomes free, freely available, is made to, is given to everybody. You know, when I was a kid, we learned something called dictator for life. If you were a pawn of the Soviet Union or a pawn of the United States, you were a dictator for life. They couldn't get rid of you. Now, of course, dictators get thrown out all the time once the people get energized. Once the people get the Internet, learn how to organize, learn that they don't have to live under poverty and subjugation and repression, and they change the government. And so I think that history does have a direction. With the outflow of information coming from the Internet, we are empowering people to control their own destiny. And so I think that's one of the great benefits of modern science. Not to mention the fact, of course, that there are problems of global warming, nuclear proliferation, and pandemics. But I think overall, information is creating a better world with the Internet. I cannot tell you, uh, Dr. Kaku, how much I want to believe that. Uh, it, it seems like the truth is now something that's debatable. And, and really, what you just said is a perfect segue to my next question. I, I truly don't necessarily like to talk about politics, but politics and science have somehow become connected these days. Uh, as you mentioned, we're battling a public health crisis. Science says that vaccinations are safe and critical to beating COVID, and yet 30% of our population refuses uh, to get vaccinated. You mentioned the catastrophic impact of global warming. Uh, everywhere it's accelerating. Many people think it's a hoax. As a scientist, how frustrated are you uh, by science deniers? Well, you know, to be honest about it, we scientists have to take some blame for this. You see, after World War II, scientists were put on a pedestal. We were the ones who helped to win World War II. We created the bomb. We created radar. We created the weapons that allow us to destroy Nazism. And so we were like sort of like gods after World War II. But then, unfortunately, we scientists oversold some of this technology. We told people that nuclear power was totally safe, too cheap to meter. It would be for free. And then Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima happened. And with the Vietnam War, we saw the military go berserk with uh, Agent Orange and carpet bombing and things like that. And so we scientists oversold some of the technologies that we were promoting, and people became skeptical as a consequence. Now, the way to cure the fact that there are incorrect ideas out there is to not shun the Internet, but to engage in the Internet. Where does truth and righteousness come from? It comes from struggle with incorrect ideas. And the fact that there are incorrect ideas out there about the virus, 
Well, that's to be expected. We're human after all. But it's up to the scientists now to jump into the game, not sit in our ivory tower and begin to engage the people. Let me give you an example. We physicists wanted to build a gigantic particle accelerator in Texas called the Super Collider. But, you know, it was getting expensive. And at the last day of hearing, one congressman said, quote, if we find God with your machine, I will vote for it. Well, the poor physicist was asked, what are we going to find with the super collider? And he said, we're going to find the Higgs boson. Well, mm-hmm. all the jaws hit the floor in Congress. $10 billion for another <laughs> subatomic particle. The vote was taken and our machine was canceled. Now, since then, we have struggled with the idea. How should we have answered that question? Will we find God with your machine? If so, I will vote for it. I would have answered it differently. I would have said, God, by whatever signs or symbols you ascribe to the deity, this machine, the super collider, will take us as close as humanly possible to his greatest creation, Genesis. This is a Genesis machine. It'll take us as close as humanly possible to the greatest event in the history of the universe, its birth. Unfortunately, we said, Higgs boson, and our machine was canceled. So the lesson is, we scientists have to learn how to engage the public. We just can't poo-poo the public and say, shame on you. No, we have to jump in and defeat incorrect ideas, because that's where correct ideas come from, from struggle with incorrect ideas. Unfortunately, there, there are a lack of, uh, of scientists like you, uh, at least that I know about, that, that are able to you know, articulate what you just did in the way that you just did. So uh, we need more, more of you. A personal question now, if I may. I'm, I'm going to go off script with this one because I know that both of your parents, Dr. Kaku, uh, were born in the United States. Both were held in internment camps during World War II. You are as American. Uh, as as anyone, what is your reaction to to the Asian American hate that we have seen in this past year? Well, first of all, hate sometimes follows something concrete like a pandemic, like an economic crisis. It's no accident that during war times or times of economic stress or a mass emergency, people lash out. People lash out at the nearest people, people who are weaker than them. And that's why my parents were locked up in a concentration camp for four years from 1942 to 1946. Uh, All their assets were confiscated, by the way. They emerged from the camps penniless. All their assets frozen or liquidated or confiscated by the government. But their attitude was, well, you pick up the pieces. You make sure that it doesn't happen again. But you don't come out with a chip on your shoulder and say, ha, shame on you. No, you try to engage people, increase the dialogue rather than poo-pooing other people or shaming other people. No, we have to engage people, talk to them to make them understand that, hey, we're human. We make mistakes, but we can rise above it. And that's why we should not have a chip on our shoulder. And so my parents did not hold a grudge. They said, let's make sure it doesn't happen again, and let's make sure that we're out there. We're out there in the public arena so that 
ideas, correct ideas will emerge. And remember, this happens every time there's an economic crisis, every time there's a political crisis, people will lash out. This is, this is human nature. It's up to us to counteract it. Sometimes I, I, I wonder about human nature. Uh, in your field, many scientists ultimately become atheists. Others become deeply spiritual. Uh, what about you? Do you think there is some intelligent divine force at work in the universe? Well, Einstein was asked this question many times, and he said that he did not believe in a personal God, a God that gives you that bicycle for Christmas, a God that smites the Philistines, uh, the God that grants you all the wishes that you've ever wanted. No, he believed in the God of Spinoza, that is the God of beauty, harmony, simplicity, and order. The universe is gorgeous. It didn't have to be that way. The universe could have been messy, chaotic, random. But no, here we are contemplating all these ideas. And so he said, no, there's the God of beauty, order, and simplicity. And he compared himself to a child entering a library, a huge library for the first time with all the books of knowledge. And all he could do was open the first book and read the first chapter. And no, Galileo was also asked that question, even though he was put on trial. And Galileo said that the purpose of science, the purpose of science is to find out how the heavens go. The purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. Mm. So in other words, religion is about ethics, about how to be a good person, how to, how to be generous to other people. That's religion. But science is about natural law. It's about how the heavens go. And as long as we keep these two separate, said Galileo, they complement each other. There's no problem at all. The problem occurs when uh, somebody from the sciences pontificates about ethics or when someone who's religious begins to pontificate about natural law. That's when we get into trouble. <laughs> But somewhere uh, at the intersection of, of those two different things becomes a philosophy of life. Uh, you know, and, and as a very intelligent guy who has spent a lot of time thinking about big things, um, what is the meaning of life? How should we be spending our time? What is a life well lived? Because when you when, when you realize that it's been 14 billion years that, you know, this universe has existed, we think. I'm um, not, not sure what was before that. You know, our, our lives aren't that long. Um, so what should we be doing? Does it make a difference? I think it makes a difference. And I personally believe that it's too easy for us to wait for a guru from the mountaintop to come down from the, from the heavens and say, this is the meaning of life. No, I believe you have to struggle to attain meaning. In other words, we create our own meaning. It's the struggle. It's the struggle to find meaning for ourselves. That is the meaning of life. Not to be given it to us. No, the meaning of life has no meaning if it's simply given to us. That defeats the whole purpose. The whole purpose is to struggle. The whole purpose is the struggle to find that meaning for you. And so I think that everybody, in some sense, has a destiny. We're all given certain abilities and 
We're given certain avenues by which we can fulfill ourselves. So it's too easy to simply have it handed down. We have to work for it. So the purpose of life is the struggle to find that meaning of life. So I guess uh, not about the destination, uh, more about the journey. And, and I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, he is uh, Dr. Michio Kaku. His latest book uh, in a string of New York Times bestsellers is The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Pick it up. Check it out. Uh, it is a fascinating read. Uh, Dr. Kaku, we thank you so much for your time uh, and all that you're doing. Up next, what do you do when you just don't fit in? You can give up or you can step up. We're going to meet a woman who overcame being bullied and being outcast who ended up becoming the downtown diva. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Alliance for Lifetime Income. Protected income from an annuity can help cover essential expenses in retirement, giving you the freedom to live the life you want. The right financial professional can show you how. Learn more at protectedincome.org. And by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Don't you hate it when somebody says to you, age is all in your mind? Oh yeah? Then why do my knees hurt? And my back? And where did I put those darn keys? Yeah, there are changes that do come with age, but it only becomes a problem when we start to use age as an excuse, says aging expert Annette Kelly. Yeah, a good bit of that, though, is actually the ageism that we um, dump on ourselves as older adults. You know, ageism is rampant. We all hear this. But it's also part of who we are as elders, you know, like um, we're protecting ourselves sometimes with our, you know, caving to, well, you know, I'm 78. You know, I say it like I'm 78, not like, well, I'm 78, you know, I think it's awesome. So you, the way you say it, yeah. 78 is like, an age, not an excuse. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's full of possibility and strength, even though. There may be and are changes in me from my younger self to my older self. Definitely. My tennis is terrible. <laughs> but the last thing you should do is stop playing because <laughs> right. it's terrible. Right. Find somebody else terrible yeah. and you'll have a blast. <laughs> right. Or a wall. But because what happens with isolation in and of itself is it causes a decrease in socialization. Oh, and we're seeing yeah. that socialization is more important maybe as we age than it oh is gosh, at any other. It really is because it's really the mirror, you know, through which you, you sort of get a sense of yourself. Without that back and forth, um, it's, it's all, you know, focused inward. And socialization, I think, also provides opportunities that we don't expect. There is more to the conversation. Find insights, resources, and useful information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. In a soldier stands, I my hand at the mongrel dogs teach. 
You know, we met a woman recently by the name of Stephanie Davis, uh, although most know her as the downtown diva. Uh, she's a true fixture in Southwest Florida in the arts and social scene there. She writes very creative columns that appear in the Florida Weekly Paper. She's also very involved in theater in the Fort Myers area, both as an actor and a director. You know, one of the things that drew us to her, Mark, is even the pandemic, it, it didn't slow her down at all. When we were locked down, she ramped up by hosting these really fun online happy hours that kept people connected. And you'd never guess that her story is really one of hope. She had to overcome a difficult childhood just to even have the opportunity to become an ordinary person living an extraordinary life. My story is not particularly conventional, so it's a little bit unusual. I definitely did not take the... um, sort of the straight path in life. I took a, I'm still taking a very curvy, long path in life, so it's a little different. Stephanie Davis had a very normal upbringing until it suddenly changed. And when I was about 11 years old, my mother um, and father uh, split up, and it was because my mother had fallen in love with a woman. Well, that'd be no big deal today, but it was the early 70s, and Stephanie was about to pay a price. And the next day on the school bus, all the kids were calling me a lezzy. And they were saying that I was queer and that my mom was queer and that we were, you know, and we were gay and we were, I mean, nobody wanted to sit with me on the bus because they said, ew, we don't, ew, we don't want to, and... So that was tough, and uh, that went on for quite a while. I I finished eighth grade, and then I went on to ninth grade, and the bullying continued even worse in the ninth grade for whatever reason. I'm not sure why it got worse. I guess the older the kids, the worse the bullying. I don't know. There was no escape at school, nowhere to hide, until she just couldn't take the bullying, insults, and abuse anymore. Basically, my solution was just don't go. <laughs> so I, I, just, I just didn't go. I would get on the bus uh, to go to school, and then when the bus arrived at the school, I would get off the bus, and then I would um, read books. I would read theater books. I'd read plays. I would read um, Tennessee Williams plays especially. I, I loved that. I would check the books out and um, the plays out and, you know, come home and, read them aloud in the bathroom mirror and act them out and act out all the characters and um, that was I loved doing that but that doesn't last for too long before school administrators realize that you're not going to school anymore. Well I ended up getting expelled from school. She felt lost, unaccepted, alone until years later when something pushed her. Remember her acting out Tennessee Williams plays in her room? Well, out of the blue, she went to the local community theater and auditioned. I didn't get a part, but they said that I could be the assistant stage manager because they said I didn't know enough about theater. I needed to learn about it. So I was the assistant stage manager on a show. And then right after that, they gave me a part in a play. And I, I not only fell in love with theater, the art of theater, and, 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 and the way that 
you can communicate an, a playwright's words to an audience. But I also fell in love with the people that were involved in theater. These people were amazing human beings. In what seemed like an instant, Stephanie found her purpose. She wanted to do it all, perform, stage, even write. In fact, she ended up getting a column in the newspaper. She was a Southwest Florida celebrity. I started a column called the Downtown Diva, and it, w- it was in our uh, local uh, Fort Myers News Press, it, and it was focusing on social events and um, parties and uh, glittery fundraisers and things like that. I started taking my camera to these events and started uh, photographing people, and you know we started doing photo pages, so I would write and photograph uh, the events. And, uh, and I, I, still, I still do uh, stuff like that for a weekly paper called Florida Weekly, which uh, you know, is, is you know, it's a lot of fun. It really is, and I enjoy it. And, and the folks at the local PBS station love you. Oh, my gosh. I love the local PBS station. I really do. And, and it really does, WGCU, affects the community. They touch the community in a unique way. Totally. Completely. Yeah, they really, it's, it's such a great local connection, um, especially to the arts. Uh, they, they've really done such a good job of keeping the arts alive in Southwest Florida and making sure that everybody knows what's going on in the art scene. So I love that about them. Stephanie lived most of her life looking over her shoulder, but now she gazes ahead into a future filled with opportunity, purpose, and joy. Proof that no matter where you came from, it is possible. I I hope that people will always know that it's okay to try new things and it's always okay to go out of your comfort zone. In fact, it's, it's, there's so many opportunities and there's so many things that are scary and so many things that it's understandable to be nervous about, but go for it. What do you have to lose? When I started writing, you know, in midway through life, I thought I can't write. I didn't even graduate high school I you know and uh, yeah you can do whatever you want you really can you really can you know when Stephanie Davis finally found herself well it's when she quit hiding her passions and actually began to indulge in them to celebrate them she found a way to make them part of her everyday life you know so many times whenever you feel lost the way forward is simply to overcome your fears. We have to learn to ignore that little voice that tells us what can go wrong and instead focus on what can go right. It certainly worked for Stephanie Davis and folks, it can work for you too. When we come back, some tips for saving for retirement. And also, we'll find out what's on Mark's mind this time. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. If you could compare retirement today with the retirement of your grandparents, you'd be surprised at how completely different they are. 
It used to be about making it to 65 and then winding down, but today it's a time to pursue new challenges, opportunities, and adventures. Hey, we're living a lot longer than they did. In fact, today there's a 25% chance that you or your spouse will live into your mid or even late 90s. And that means you may have to cover a lot more years financially. Making sure you don't outlive your savings begins with having the money to cover the essentials like mortgage, rent, food, and medical expenses. And one way to do just that is from the protected income provided by an annuity. An annuity can provide a steady income stream to help you cover those monthly expenses. And you can find out more about it from the Alliance for Lifetime Income. The Alliance is a nonprofit educational organization that believes that no American should have to face the prospect of running out of money in retirement. At protectedincome.org, they provide easy-to-understand information, tools and guides, and stories of real-life Americans who have found ways to protect their retirement, allowing them the freedom to live a bold life. More information at protectedincome.org. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Hi, Mark Middleton. And now, uh, you know, Bill asked me every week to share what's on my mind. And, Bill, I think what's always on my mind, we stay so busy around here, what's on my mind is, is literally what I just did or what I'm about to do. And I just wrote an article recently that's called Mark's 10 Keys to Successful Aging. Uh, and I'm going to share five of them now. And let's chat a little bit about those. And, folks, if you want to see them all, if you want to read them all, just go to growingbolder.com and you can read all 10 of them. But, but here's, here's five of them. And, Bill, this is nothing new because I talk a lot about this. You talk a lot about these things often, but I don't think we can talk about them too much. Number one, the number one key to successful aging, folks, is to change our belief system about what's possible. Uh, that's job number one because we do live in this ageist culture, uh, and it leads us to fear and resent growing older, and the damage is then quickly passed from our minds into our bodies. Number two is another one of my favorite topics, and that is to prehabilitate. And, and prehabilitation, folks, is simply positive lifestyle modification. It's preparing for the inevitable, the health challenges that we will all face as we age. So it's, it's moving more. It's eating better. It's getting more sleep. Because if we prehabilitate, we will bounce back better, further, quicker from whatever those challenges are. Uh, number three, three in Mark's 10 keys to successful aging, uh, adapt and accommodate. Uh, because the, the single most common denominator of people that live to be very old is loss. You know, we, we, lose, we lose our keys, we lose our license, we lose our spouse, we lose our kids, we lose our friends, we lose our job, we lose our eyesight. Uh, it's, it's just too much for most people, but the people who still have a quality of life in their 100s, they're able to adapt and accommodate. Uh, they mourn and move on. It doesn't mean they're inhuman. It just means that they still find passion. Uh, and that's number four, have purpose in your life. Purpose is what fuels the life force. You know, when we're younger, uh, putting food on the table for our kids, bringing home a paycheck, you know, that, that, may, that keeps us going. But when we get older, if we don't have a purpose, if we don't have a passion, you lose the desire to keep on keeping on. Everybody that we've ever met that lives to, uh, to an older age and has a great quality of life has a purpose in their life. And finally, folks, give up perfection. Be an amateur. Quit trying to be a professional at anything. Resist the urge to regress and do that which is comfortable. 
Uh, another way to say it, and we do all the time, is to say yes to life. Get out there. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to embarrass yourself. Be an amateur and luxuriate in the process. There's five of the ten, Bill. What do you think? Not only is this, not only is this the time of life where things are so different, they're better. Because you talked about purpose. When we're, well, what's our purpose for most of our life? To provide, to hope you don't get fired, to hope you make enough money to support your family and make, allow them to do what they've got to do. But now you get to choose your purpose. Your purpose could be making a difference for other people, something that you love to dive into, something that you're interested in. So now your whole perspective changes because instead of doing what you have to, you're doing what you want to. And to me, that affects every single aspect of your life. You know, I love that, Bill. I was on the phone with a, with a publicist uh, who, who reached out to us and said, you know what, I think the secret to growing bolder is you don't talk down to your audience. You're, you're real, you're authentic, you're credible, uh, and you don't lie to them. Uh, aging has its challenges, but there is a pathway forward. There is a way to extract value and joy out of each and every moment. And the best thing about your keys to aging that you provided for us, they apply no matter how old you are. You don't have to silo yourself off in an age group. It's for everybody. And folks, that's what Growing Boulder is all about. We're glad you're with us. Please check us out at growingbolder.com. We'll see you again. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Stay.